Welcome to another week with me and my teen and the news. Me, I'm Tim. My teen is Ben. Hi. And we're excited that you're joining us for another action-filled podcast full with guns a-blazing and more activity than three sequels of Die Hard. There are three sequels of Die Hard? Maybe four now. Okay, I lied about that. We're a podcast after all. We won't have as much action as even one sequel to Die Hard. We won't have as many action as, like, the exposition of Die Hard. I don't even know what that means. Like, you know, the beginning where it's, like, on the plane. Oh, yeah. On the plane to uh, California. Yeah, or wherever. Yeah, this is not, by the way, a Die Hard movie buff podcast. But that would be an excellent podcast to listen to. And if there is one, go find it. But not until you've finished listening to us this week as we talk about Ben's life, what it's like to be a teenager today, and inevitably we talk some about the news. So Ben, what have you been paying attention to in the world this week? Uh, let's see. Delta variant's a thing now. Yes. And apparently the only reason we haven't beaten this pandemic yet is because people won't get vaccinated. Well, that yeah. does seem like a factor, but you said that's the only reason. Uh, where do you get that information from? Uh, let's see, the CDC, and if you just look, like, a map of where the COVID cases are in the U.S. and a map of where the vaccination rates are, you can see there's a very clear correlation. Like, Missouri has a lot of COVID cases and not a lot of vaccination. In certain parts of the state. So, clearly there is a correlation there. Now, the origin of the Delta variant is actually from the country of India, correct? Yeah. And one of the things that they warned us about, the scientists said that if we don't vaccinate enough of the world, the virus will mutate. You'll have these variants, now with Delta among them, um, and that they could evade vaccines or be more deadly than the existing coronavirus have been, right? Yeah. So in the case of India, it wasn't as much a case of a reluctance to get vaccinated as there was the vaccine being available. One of the criticisms of the White House plans at the time were that we weren't sharing enough with the world, um, and that may have caused the creation in some sense of the delta virus and and i mean it's a very hard call to make because you know not all of the u.s was vaccinated at the time of the delta variant when was that may may 2021 i think that really started and i mean at that time the vaccination rates in the u.s were still low and you know india has what three times almost three times as many people as the u.s that's correct so, you know, they're... Stop ruining the studio. It's fine. Anyway, um... What was I saying? That yeah. wasn't a temper tantrum, folks. It's just him knocking his headphones over. Yeah. Don't worry. He's a teenager. They're like that. So the Delta variant, yeah. uh, you were saying that even if the U.S. had tried to share more vaccines with the world, probably would not have been enough to stop the inception of the Delta variant but that the spread of it in the United States could have been greatly slowed and if probably more were vaccinated. Probably if we could have definitely have reached President Biden's goal of 70% had their first shot by July 4th. Mm-hmm. Like, that wasn't a hard goal to make. 
and at the beginning of the vaccination rate. Had that continued, we would have blown past it, but it's now not a problem. There's kind of like, I, you hear a lot, there's two Americas now, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, and, you know, parts with a lot of vaccination, with a high vaccination rate, like Vermont, has, like, virtually zero COVID cases, while places like Arkansas and Missouri and Louisiana are in a full-blown crisis right now. So, to divide America into two Americas like that, there is a presumption that those who are not vaccinated have all chosen equally not to be vaccinated, right? That's the, the perception we have? Yeah, I mean, there are still some small parts in very low-income areas that haven't really, really rural areas, but pretty much the vaccine's been out and there's been so much distribution that anyone who has wanted a vaccine can pretty easily get their hands on the vaccine. Except for certain people who have immune system compromisations, yeah, and, which is a very, very but they small exist. number. We shouldn't rule them out. And, of course, anyone 12 or under, right? Yeah, but with these vaccination rates, I don't think they count 12 and under in the... Right, in the rate. But, I mean, there are people who can't be vaccinated, not the least of which is a large part of the population who are 12 children. and under, but... Which brings us to latest guidelines, which is seeing a lot more information in terms of, hey, you should wear a mask. Uh, kids probably want to wear masks at school. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, I can kind of agree for, you know, high school and below because kids, especially younger ones, are kind of gross. I mean, watch a kindergartner for five minutes and see how many surfaces he touches and licks. Like, yeah. those guys are always kind of little flu factories. You were one of those guys. Once. Yeah, I know, but... Now that you're and, a teenager, not disgusting at all anymore. Yeah, Never. sure. But I think that they should probably have teachers definitely vaccinated. As a requirement or as an option? I think definitely as a requirement. Mm. So government uh, should require people to be vaccinated in certain roles. Yeah, I mean, they're public employees and they work with so many people. Mm -hmm. Any exceptions? I mean, they're in contact with, what, a hundred... hundred kids a day, probably. Yeah. Who then go back and contact their families. I'm not arguing with you. But uh, should there be exceptions for that, or what, mean, what should happen if teachers have real hesitation about getting a uh, vaccine? Well, it's tricky because almost all of the hesitation is from misinformation, mm -hmm. and it's really hard. Like, Facebook's a big perpetrator of it Yeah, with misinformation, and I don't think... I read this good article in The Atlantic. People who aren't getting the vaccine aren't anti-vax. They're just misinformed. So, wait a minute. You have a subscription to The Atlantic? No. How are you reading articles from The Atlantic? Uh, the Apple News app? Same. Uh, on your phone? Yeah. Wow. What magazines do you subscribe to? None. Oh, but you read magazine articles all the time? On my phone, yeah. yeah. If I want to. Just talking about how, you know... You young people are ruining the media economy for the rest of us. But go on and subscribe to something when you get older. Uh, but I mean, 
information is really critical, right? That's what you're saying. And that having the right information that comes from people who are doing their level best to give you good information is the best way to make progress on fighting this virus and really anything in life, right? Yeah. And the thing is, like, other countries are watching and saying it's completely ridiculous how this virus has become so politicized when it unnecessarily needs to. And people might think, hey, conservatives, like, of any in any part of the world are reluctant, but that's not true. Like, the UK has a decently high vaccination rate among members of the, uh, their, what's it called, the Conservative Party? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I don't the, think the virus does not belong to a party, right? Yeah. Not politically active. The virus does not belong to a party unless you're in America. Then it does. <laughs> so, I think the conservative take that we would have heard if we were truly interested in arguments about individual rights would be, hey, the government shouldn't require people to be vaccinated. But then you would turn around immediately and say to people, it's not required, but you should get vaccinated, would be the second part of that message that we're just not hearing from most yeah, I mean, on that side of the aisle. The government does require people to wear a seat belt, right? That's true. Imagine if people start protesting en masse. I don't want to wear a seat belt. Why would they sound like that when they protest? I don't know. I'm just assuming that they're a rube. Why would you assume that someone with a... Uh, rural sounding accent would be someone who's less intelligent man no just a stereotype yeah stop it with the stereotypes <sighs> Jeez, not this again well yeah I, I mean i don't know just anyway my point is like the government can require you to wear seat belts i mean yeah there was a lot of arguing about that by the way for years there was arguing about that yeah it's still the case that you can't be pulled over for not wearing your seat belt it has to be a secondary, in most municipalities, it has to be a secondary crime. Secondary infraction, I should say. So if you pull over for speeding, you can also be ticketed for not wearing your seatbelt. But you can't be pulled over for just wearing your, not wearing your seatbelt in most places. Funny quirks of the rule when things get argued into existence as, as laws. Let's talk about some other things because, you know, we've talked a fair amount about uh, COVID and vaccines and how it's affecting us and all that. Uh, have you been following the other big stories of the week? We are in the middle of the Olympics. Have you watched any Olympics coverage? I've watched some. Yeah, what have you paid attention to? Eh, the U.S. isn't doing as well as we thought. Oh, overall? Yeah, I mean, normally we kind of just crush everything. Well, I don't think that's necessarily true. We don't always win the medal count. Yeah, but we always do a lot better, and... I know Simone Biles pulled out of an event. What have you heard about that? Not much, other than she pulled out of one event. I think she's still she's still competing in all the others, right? No, I think she actually has dropped out of the all-around and all the other events as well. I thought it was just that one. No, it was the first one, and then subsequently she dropped out of all of her events. But why? You haven't seen any news about why? No. So the news reports are largely saying that her... Mental health isn't in a safe place for her to be able to compete at the level she's used to competing at, and so that she feels it's better for someone else to have that spot. Um, and there's been, you know, a fair amount of support for her decision to take care of her own mental well-being, and a fair amount of criticism of her decision as though she may be letting down the team and letting down her country by not 
competing at the Olympics when, you know, you would say in the gymnastics world when it matters most. Well, what do you think about it? Oh, I'm supposed to ask you the questions, what do you think? But here's one interesting article that I read about it. Uh, actually, I take it back. It wasn't an article. It was a Twitter thread by a gymnast who described what it's like to trick your brain when you are in the air and learning how to do twists and turns and flips and how to create a sensory experience so that your body knows when to twist, when to flip, and how to land when you're you know, running and doing all the jumping and twisting up in the air because it's a very disorienting thing. And in this uh, Twitter thread, she talked about how if you lose mental clarity on part of that, it's a little bit like, I know you don't know how to drive yet because we're going to teach you later. <laughs> when you first learn to drive, you are thinking about all the components, uh, the steering wheel, how much pressure to put on the gas, how much to put on the brake, how, if using a stick shift, how much is the clutch to put in. But after a while, it becomes muscle memory and it's just automatic. But if for some reason one day you doubt yourself that you're in a different car or you're driving a different style or something, and suddenly you're thinking about things again, it becomes very disorienting. You kind of have to relearn a little bit. And she said, mentally in gymnastics, if you're in the air and twisting and flipping and you have to reset something or refocus something, it's like starting all over again and you have to slow down and it can be very scary. And, you know, you can really hurt yourself if you're twisting in the air and your body doesn't know where you are in your twist and jump. So I thought that was interesting. There's also an, a bit of talk. Uh, you probably haven't followed much the case of Larry Nasser and U.S. Gymnastics, I assume. Who? So this all happened a little bit before your time, even, which is hard to say, but you are only 15. Um, the long-time or a long-time position for U.S. Gymnastics and for uh, university sports, um, it came out for many years had been sexually abusing athletes huh and it was really devastating obviously for a lot of people simone biles at 24 is the last american female gymnastics competitor on the olympics team who was a victim of larry nasser oh boy and so that adds lifelong emotional complications for anybody now she hasn't talked about that in this case but it certainly could be a factor um, and the increasing demands that we're seeing on athletes and taking charge of their mental well-being at these high-stakes events. Um, the tennis player who... Uh, Naomi Osaka? Correct. So she's had a couple of very visible withdrawals from large tournaments to focus on her mental well-being. Have you followed any of her stories at all? A few... Yeah. Apparently she got like heavily penalized at like the French Open or one of the Opens for not talking to reporters after a Correct. game because it super stresses her out. And I mean, kind of does seem like a jerk move for reporters to do that like right after they've just come off a really emotional win or loss. Well, without the media, there wouldn't be the widespread coverage of these sporting events and these sporting events wouldn't have the financial interests that they do and athletes wouldn't be able to make millions of dollars. I know, dollars. but couldn't they do the interviews like a few hours after? Just give them time to 
fully process what the heck just happened. The fans want the information now. A few hours later, they've moved on to the next thing. That doesn't seem very nice. Well, that's why the financial model supports athletes paying attention and being visible when there's the most interest. But you've played sports. You've been in stressful situations. Uh, nothing like that, though. Nothing like that, but I mean, you know, when everybody's watching you, when everyone is counting on you, your teammates, and you have moments where you're like, not clear that you can do it, or you have struggles uh, with that. Uh, you've had instances like that, you know, in your own sporting career? Eh. Mostly when that happens, it's... I kind of use fear to fight the fear, so it's like, huh, if I screw up, we lose. Well, I better not screw up, because losing here would be really bad, and everyone would hate me more for that. That doesn't sound like a pleasant sports experience. It's fine. Yeah? Yeah, you know, it's sometimes nice to have other people relying on you. It makes you perform better, knowing that if you don't do your best, you would let someone down, and you need... You know, other people push you to be better, right? Yeah. So it's, I guess it's kind of like that. I don't know really how to explain it. So you've, as you've played high school soccer now, um, you've had, you feel like more of a support system than, than you had when you were younger among your teammates? I guess, yeah. Yeah. So there have been times when... You know, and I don't think I'm revealing any secrets here for any parent who's watched their child play a sport when things don't go well. And people get upset. Athletes get upset uh, all the way from the Olympic level down to the T-ball amateur level. Um, you know, for you, have you ever felt like times where you really struggled with sports in terms of being able to handle the pressure? I mean... A few times, but then again, I can always just go back to the, hey, I'm, you know, whatever age, it's just a game. Yeah. Win or lose, I might as well have some fun doing it and not worry about it, because especially with team sports, like, as long as I'm giving 100%, then I can blame it on the other guys. <laughs> Do you ever panic during sports? Eh, not really. I'm kind of too, I don't know focus to panic i see are there times or have there been times let's not talk about today let's talk about over the past few years since you were 11 12 something like that are there times you're in a sporting event and you would rather when a big moment comes up you'd rather step out of the game and have your teammate handle it instead i mean a few times but yeah what drives that uh what if i mess up yeah. this guy's better Let's just let the better guy do it. I see. Yeah. But, I mean, not really. Have you had an experience where you have teammates or someone you've played with where you looked at them and realized that they were having a moment of panic? Eh, not really. No? No, I'm not observant like that. <laughs> you focus only on yourself. Speaking of panicking, though, apparently officers panicked at the January 6th. All right, Ben, we'll stop talking about your mental health when it comes to sports. <laughs> Thanks. But other big stories. So before we move on to the officers testifying, and I definitely want to talk about that, uh, is there anything else out of the Olympics that you have been paying attention to? Uh, oh, yeah. 
Apparently some of the athletes there, and I didn't know this, are, like, really young. Yeah. Like, a 13-year-old girl won gold Olympic skateboarding. Yeah, they, and I saw there was an X Games champion not too long ago who was extremely young as well. Yeah, I mean, that must be really hard. I don't know, like, if that should be a thing, because that's a lot of pressure to put on a 13-year-old. Well, I guess it's a lot of pressure to put on anybody, but you think maybe there should be a, a limit as to how young you can be before you compete at the Olympics? I mean, probably. Depends on the sport, but, like, yeah. you know, sports like, for example, boxing, you really don't want to have a 14-year-old going up against a 27-year-old. But if the 14-year-old is good enough, shouldn't he or she have the right to compete against the world's best i guess i just feel like it's a lot of pressure to put on a teenager yeah let me ask you a few other things so uh at your soccer practices or when you're around people talking about the world you all get together and say hey did you see that swimming race last night or did you see that olympic event it's not really about the olympics it's mostly like oh, i can't believe england can't take a penalty to save their life <laughs> right okay so that would be from a few weeks ago at the uh, European Cup. Yeah. Yeah. So I just only bring that up because when I was your age and we had just network television because we didn't even have cable, I mean, the Olympics was everybody watched it. Everybody watched it live and you'd stay up late or get up early and watch the events live and you would talk about it. And I don't sense the same conversations happening around the events like there used to be. There's controversy you know, Simone Biles or in other areas. But I don't feel like this Olympics has been a, hey, did you see that event? Wasn't that amazing? Let's talk about it kind of Olympics. Yeah. I don't really know why that's happening. I mean, <clears throat> obviously there are some events that, maybe it's because it's early in the Olympics and they're, you know, not a whole lot of the finals have gotten underway. Mm -hmm. And the finals that they do have are for sports that don't have a huge audience like i don't know javelin throwing yeah track and, and considering it's in i think it's hard especially for the u.s audience to get it live because it's in tokyo right that does, so that does three o'clock tokyo time they're what eight it does have an impact although uh we often forget as i mentioned to you yesterday uh two of the world's most watched olympic sports are Ping pong and badminton. Yeah, and soccer. Well, and soccer, but I mean, literally, if you watch total number of television viewers worldwide for sporting events, you'll find at or near the top of the Olympics, ping pong and badminton. Huh. And I mentioned that just to show that we in the U.S. tend to get obsessed over our sports and the things that we find most important. But in other parts of the world, there are other sports that are the priority. Yeah, like, I mean, I guess every country has, like, two or three or four sports that, like, the USA has baseball, football, and basketball. Mm -hmm. Brazil has soccer, soccer, and soccer. <laughs> right. And, you know, places like China might have soccer, table tennis, and badminton for an example. Well, sure. You know, are different varieties of sports like that. But it's good to remind ourselves of the global stage and what matters globally. That we're the only country that likes football. American football. 
Yeah. Um, and most, well, there's Canadian football. What's Canadian football? There's a whole league, the Canadian Football League. Does anyone There's... care about the Canadian yes, football? Yes, they have very many fans. They play... Uh, yeah, like all 12 of them? You get... No, they have lots of fans. The Montreal Alouettes, I think, have been a long-time powerhouse team. You get three downs, and I think it's uh, 20 yards for a first down. Anyway, very exciting. We'll talk about that another time. But in the world of sports, I am confident you are closely following the baseball tra- trade deadline. What? Right? Aren't what? you paying attention to everything happening with the baseball trade deadline? No, I'm not obsessed with baseball like you. Oh. Aren't you watching baseball? Aren't you hoping your favorite team gets a certain player for the playoff run? No. Why not? I don't know. Baseball's just not really my sport. I mean, watching it, playing it's kind of fun, but watching it can be described as a slow burn. Really? Like, it can take three to four hours, and half that time's commercials. That's true. Like, think, he steps up to the plate, he's taking a practice swing, and the pitch, and it's outside ball one. I can't believe a teenager doesn't want to spend all of his time, four hours a day, watching baseball. Yeah, I mean, you know, baseball's like the one of the only sports where they make up, like, the most obscure stats possible. Like, this man leads home runs when the pitch is inside of the strike zone after the seventh inning with one runner on third base. It'd be really something if it was with two runners on third base. Yeah. All right, so you're not a big baseball fan. So let's go back to talking about the news and something that I know connected with you and you were paying attention to. The testimony of the officers in the January 6th. Um, incident, shall we call it? Uh, riot? Insurrection? Yeah, whatever you like to call it. So what have you seen in terms of coverage? What has it meant for you? Uh, I mean, basically reaffirms what we already thought, except it makes it worse, because, I mean, we knew there were some atrocities, but I didn't know that, like, what, 180 officers were injured or something like that. Mm-hmm. 150 or something it was a very high number, and some of those guys were pretty seriously injured Yeah, by the crowd. Yeah. Like, some of them definitely thought they were going to die. So, you, I mean, you read when it all happened about some of these things, but what's been different about seeing the actual testimony? Uh, I don't know. I feel like it's more of a human connection. Mm-hmm. You know, just reading about what happened versus to watching and listening to someone who was actually there describe it. And, I mean, the officers definitely in their testimony appear emotional and frustrated and angry with members of Congress and the Senate who are still continuing to downplay the events. Right. I mean, the select committee was supposed to have five more Republicans, but... McCarthy nominated, like, two of them who were sure. basically downplaying the riot to such an extent that Pelosi said, no, those two have to go. And McCarthy was like, well, if I can't have my two crazies, then none of the crazies are coming. Well, all right, let's not get that political right. part of it, because I think that loses the impact of what you were just talking about a moment ago. The power and emotion that comes from hearing and seeing the actual police officers talking for themselves about what happened and how that's different than reading about it. Um, And it speaks to something that in my career in news, I really learned early on, it makes a much bigger difference 
because as media, our goal was always really to bring important stories, but to help you connect to them in a powerful way. That's why the uh, lead in Congress who leads were investigating this wanted to have this, wanted to have these hearings be public and to hear these officers testify. If you were just reading about their testimony the next day in the paper or something, it wouldn't make the same emotional connection and bring the reality of what happened to you in the same way as just seeing them talk about it, right? Yeah, I mean, you're cor- you're absolutely right. The human connection there is definitely, like, I feel like a lot of people don't understand really the gravity of what happened on that day, and we still don't know how it all really went down, like, why was it so catastrophic? Mm-hmm. I did see one interesting quotation. The one of the officers said that the reason they didn't start shooting to protect themselves is that they felt like they were outgunned if the shooting started. Huh. Which I thought was, was a fascinating look, because I think a lot of people were like, hey, you just let these riders walk in. And hearing their perspectives, like, no... That wasn't quite the case. That was one of the big criticisms uh, was that if these protesters had been on the other side of the political aisle, so to speak, there would have been more police in riot gear and there would have been gunshots fired or something that they would have been stopped. Um, And that there was questions about whether officers were sympathizing with those folks. But from the testimony, it didn't really seem like that, but... You know, there are a whole lot of theories and, you know, a lot of Republican congressmen are trying to play pin the blame on anyone who isn't Trump. Uh, There is some of that, you know, and then it just gets us to a political note that there's, I feel like a lot being made out of this Republican congressional race runoff election, I should say, in Texas, where the candidate backed by former President Trump lost in the runoff to uh, another candidate and it's being looked at as a sign of perhaps a weakening of former President Trump's hold on the Republican Party. But it was a lot of headlines jumping right to that conclusion to the point of like, "Mm, that's one race, it's two individual people, lots of people have endorsed candidates who lost. I worry that the media in general As we all know, the media is actually a conglomeration of thousands and thousands of individuals who are all unique and have different viewpoints and express them differently. There is a rush to elevate this as a race, as a sign of what's happening with Trump's influence, as it were, that may be premature to base a lot of things off of one thing. But I'm seeing a lot of headlines like that. Have you been seeing a lot of headlines like that? Mm, Not really. It's still, especially in the congressional races, basically the best strategy to win if you're a Republican is get the biggest megaphone you can find and scream, I love Trump, out of it as as many times as you can. Well, I'll say maybe. And maybe in different districts it's different. Uh, like Clearly, with... Ron DeSantis is positioning himself even further as the heir apparent in the Republican Party. I mean, in Ohio... Mm-hmm. With the Senate election to replace Rob Portman. Yes. 
I mean, Hillbilly Elegy author J.D. Vance, Vance. Mm -hmm. threw his hat into the ring. People thought, he's not going to win. He's a prominent Trump critic. Well, apparently not anymore. He deleted all of his tweets mentioning Trump and replaced them with, I love Trump. Trump is great. Well, which, which I mean, he did a, a full Ted. He he did a full Ted Cruz right there. Yeah, you know it's um, unfortunate that in the long history of politics, politicians have a habit of saying whatever they think will help them win. Their justification, of course, being, "I can't do anything to help the world if I can't win election first. Yeah, but were you supposed to win that election if you're so willing to compromise your principles? Maybe someone else would have been better for the job. Wow. Let a principal person run and have the job. Well, we would, except the other side is just so awful that we have to do whatever we can to keep them from winning. Yeah, that's pretty much politics there in this go. country. Politics in America, we just summarized it in the last 10 seconds of this podcast. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed listening to the however many minutes it was to get there, because that pearl of wisdom, ladies and gentlemen, is what you can take with you and use it at a cocktail party and you will sound very smart. Unlike my teenager who just let his phone start playing. My bad. While we're trying to wrap up the podcast. You what? Can't I just wait turned it minute? on and there was some music accidentally playing. You can't wait one minute to look at your phone until we're done I with the podcast? I need to look at the time. I've got to get to soccer. <sighs> well, you've done it. You've spent another glorious podcast with me and my team. For this week, I'm Tim. I'm Ben. And this is me and my team and the news. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>